0: Okay, so we are in the midst of this series on the Holy Spirit. The first week we considered the personhood of the Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Do we know Him and consider what a great gift He is? Uh, Last week we considered how we need to welcome the work of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Well, He loves to shine the spotlight on Jesus. He loves to point away from Himself and, and direct our attention to the glory of Christ. So that we can behold the glory of Christ, not with physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith, like we, we sung, open the eyes of my heart, uh, because we become like what we admire. So if we really see Jesus in all of his glory, we're gonna want to be like him and we're gonna be transformed, just like 2 Corinthians three eighteen says. And then this morning, I hope that as we continue to consider the work of the Holy Spirit, we're gonna come away exulting in the work of the Holy Spirit. I know we don't typically use that word. We'll talk about it in a second. But the point of this morning is that we would recognize the miracle work that the Holy Spirit does in salvation. Okay? So one goal, in a sense, this morning is that you would exult in the work of God in salvation and particularly in what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. I hope that we're thrilled with the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, God has done great things in our lives, and sometimes I think we just aren't aware of all that He has done and all that He is doing. So, like I said, exult, not a word you probably use all that much. Maybe you think you never even do that. What does it mean to do that? Have I ever done that? Um, Well, basically, it's just kind of a fancy word for what you do when you're really jazzed about something. Okay, If you are overjoyed or thrilled... You're on cloud nine. You're reveling in something. You're glorying in something. You're taking delight in something. So, when was the last time you exulted in something or someone? Was it with a sporting event? Maybe a favorite sports team? Amazing win, big game win. You were exulting in the success of a team that you identify with. Okay? In fact, it's really interesting if you think about when we do this, we're either basking in the glory of our own accomplishments or basking in the glory of someone else's accomplishments when we exult. I think that covers most of it. So you can you see people that finish a marathon or they, they do something and they win, and they're like, yes, they're just basking in the glory of their accomplishment. Or, like I said, a team, favorite team, World Series, Super Bowl, whatever it is for you, and people go bananas, even if they're generally, you know, pretty calm. Their team wins, they are just exulting in the glory of that victory. So we need to know something. Exulting, like the stuff of the heart that leads to exulting, that is intensely practical. If you, if you hear me say, main goal application of this is that you would exult in the work of the Holy Spirit, man. I got like things to do this week. I got hard things in my life. How practical is that? Oh, it's intensely practical. It's so important that this would be in our lives. In fact, exaltation shouldn't be optional in the Christian life. We need to get thrilled about the blessings of the gospel. Think about the ugliness of apathy and indifference. Especially over things that are great and meaningful and important, like the gospel. And why is it that lesser things captivate our attention and we gush over created things like technology? Because we're bored with the Creator and His glory and His gifts, and we're bored with the gospel. So exaltation is not just for people who are really doing well and have everything going for them. It isn't just for people with certain kinds of personalities, you know, given to enthusiasm and bubbliness. This is for sufferers. This is for strugglers. This is for all of us. In fact, it's in the context of suffering and trials that Peter wrote in the first chapter of his letter. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read you um, two verses from there. But he's talking about how, you know, suffering and trial test and prove our faith. And he said, To those sufferers, though you have not seen Jesus physically, literally, like the apostles did. You love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How often has that been in your experience? Do you want that to be your experience more? That sounds like exulting in the gospel. And they're doing that because they're obtaining the outcome of their faith, the, the salvation of their souls. So Do you think there's any connection between exalting in the person of work and work of God by his spirit and how we live our lives? I hope that you would say yes. If not, just hang in there with me. Let me just open with an illustration here from the book of the month. I told you I'm going to keep plugging this thing. So interspersed in between some of the chapters, there's little testimonies of people's lives that are powerfully transformed by God, uh, by his spirit. And so Francis Chan tells of Thomas and Jen Yun. He says, have you ever met people who are so joyful and kind you assume they're fake? I'm guilty of that, for sure. After all, no one could genuinely be that cheerful, certainly not all the time. Thomas and Jen would be the first to admit their imperfections, but I secretly wish I could see those come out more so I would feel less guilty about myself. And Jen works in the church office, and she's one of the people, I think, when I hear the term spirit-filled, she doesn't have a list of accomplishments to amaze you. It's more about who she is than what she's done. I think you know the type, the person who convicts you just by how she lives her life and interacts with people. I first met Thomas because he was a chef and co-owner of an extremely nice and expensive steakhouse in town. And, you know, he had invited Francis and his wife to have a meal there. While there, Thomas shared with me how great the restaurant was doing. It had far exceeded expectations. In another three years, he would receive back not only his initial investment, but a huge bonus on top of that. The only problem was that God was calling him away from the restaurant then. Then, not in three years. Thomas surprised his partners by giving up the money in order to pursue the ministry God was calling him to. Thomas left the fancy restaurant and took a position at the local rescue mission. He now cooks for the homeless, recovering addicts and others who are seeking to rebuild their lives. He uses his training in the culinary arts to teach the homeless how to cook. He then helps them find jobs as cooks at local restaurants. Thomas and Jenner, a young couple in our church body they there, spirit-filled and spirit-led couple, they believe God will soon call them overseas, but until that day comes, they seek daily to follow as the spirit leads and they're doing it. Do you think there's any connection between that really happy in Jesus thing that he started off with and that decision to leave the restaurant? I think so. So that's the connection we're talking about this morning as far as exalting in the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this passage. It's part of what Greg read. Just two verses really, although we're going to bleed into Romans 8 um, before we're done. But we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're not still there, just flip back to page 976 and I'll read these two verses and we'll dive in. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Can we just pray briefly one more time? Father, would you please make the benefits, the blessings, the promises of the gospel more real to us this morning by your Spirit? Please cause us to taste and see that you are good. And I pray that that taste would thrill us and overflow in praise. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So there's an outline in the bulletin. see the points up on the screen as well, but let's look first here. Verse 13, it talks about the Spirit as the seal, um, the one in whom we are, or how we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So um, this first section in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 that Greg read is actually one sentence In Greek, it's this prayerful praise to the triune God for all of his work in in redemption, stretching from before time began to all the way into eternity future. And so Paul blesses God the Father, through whom all these blessings in Christ are ours. And then there are specific aspects of this redemptive work that are attributed to the Father, to the Son, the Spirit. We're going to focus on the work of the Spirit this morning in verses 13 to 14. But obviously, we can't pull apart as if it's God, the Father, Son, and Spirit working together in beautiful concert to accomplish these things. So again, verses 13 and 14 this morning. So in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you Gentiles, you Ephesians, and believed in him and us, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So do you know what happens to someone when they're converted, when someone is saved from their sins and they come to Jesus? Do you know what, what's happening, what has happened, what conversion entails? This is miracle stuff. Okay. So think about it this way. When somebody gets pregnant and gives birth to a baby, oftentimes I mean, they have these apps now to find out all the different things about how big is your baby. And, you know, you want to learn all of these things as you go along. You learn all kinds of new things about the mother's body and all the wonders of how God made her. You learn new things about the baby's body and all the wonders of how a baby grows and enters the world. And you marvel at it all. Well, here we're talking about an even greater miracle, the miracle of new birth. So we need to learn about the wonders God does. We need to learn about the wonders of what happens in a new child of God. Okay, so that's some of what we're going to consider this morning. So when a person hears the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, do you see it there? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, they hear the gospel message. God made you. He knows what's best for you. He loves you. He alone is worthy of our worship and allegiance. He made us for his glory. But they also hear that we're all sinners. We've all, because of our first parents who turned their backs on the goodness of God, doubted his goodness, we are all born bent and broken. Okay, So we've all turned away from God and turned in on ourselves and we're worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. And none of those things can save us. None of those things can satisfy us. And we've broken God's law and we're guilty and we all deserve just judgment and and condemnation. The wages of sin is death. And so when somebody hears the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, they hear some bad news first that hell is not just a four-letter word. It's a real destination of everyone who rejects God. But if they hear the gospel of Jesus, they also hear that God isn't just only a just judge. He's also an incredibly merciful and loving, gracious savior. And he demonstrates his love and that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. And he so loved this dark rebellious world and us dark rebels that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And they hear that reconciliation with God, rescue from his wrath, from sin's curse, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, it's a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You simply receive it. You turn your back on your old way of life. You repent. And you come to Jesus and you trust in him as your Savior. Right? So that's the gospel. I hope that you believe that with all your heart. I hope that you love that message. I hope that it's ready on your mind and your tongue to share it with whoever you can. But how many people have heard that message on planet Earth? Lots of people. There's still plenty more that need to hear. So the work isn't done. But there's a whole lot more that have heard it than that believe it. So Ephesians 1.13, In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. I mean, the gospel is the power of God and salvation, but we all know that some hear it, and it goes in one ear and out the other. For others, it, it sinks in and transforms their lives. Hopefully, all of us in here, most of us in here. So what's the difference? Is it that you were smarter or more spiritually intuitive than that other person? No, it's the work of the Spirit of God activating that gospel seed and causing it to grow in your heart and transform you from the inside out. Like Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the regenerator. And in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul talks about being made alive together with Christ. We were dead in our sins, okay? If you look at Titus 3, we won't go there, but write down Titus 3, 3 to to 8. There's such a rich nutshell, um, like a dense, packed, sweet section on, on the gospel and what the Spirit does, and He's the Spirit who regenerates and renews us, okay? So the Spirit is the regenerator, we hear the gospel, and it doesn't go in one ear and out the other because the Spirit takes it and, and makes us alive. We're given repentance and faith as gifts. So we can't boast. It's all of grace. So when you heard and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those all go together. It's not like it's you heard and believed, and then you were sealed with the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit as you... Believe so. What's this sealing all about? Well, in Paul's day, this sealing had connotations of ownership and protection. Okay, it could be used of animals or slaves. Okay, they would be branded. This is back in Paul's day; they would be branded or marked with a a seal indicating who they belonged to. It also has connotations of protection. So Jesus's tomb was sealed. Same word. Okay, in order to protect it from grave robbers. So in Ephesians 4, same book, 4.30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, he's gonna keep you until the day of redemption. So ownership and protection, this seal idea. And maybe we can appreciate the protection aspect pretty immediately, but ownership, especially if slaves were sealed by their owners, this might not have the greatest connotations initially. But that would be to miss the point. This ownership is a wonderful thing. It means that God has chosen us and set his affection on us and made us his. So this this sealing with the Spirit is God saying, I love you. Like, put your name in the sentence. I love you. I'm choosing you. You are mine. So to use an important phrase from other parts of the Bible that's, that kind of intersects with this, we are his treasured possession. We're his. You know where that comes from? Listen to Deuteronomy 7. In fact, flip back there. Deuteronomy 7, because this language comes up a number of times in the Bible, and we just need to see how amazing this is that we would be called this. It's hard to believe Deuteronomy 7, if you're using Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 152. Look at verse 6. So this is God's people in the Old Testament, but this kind of language is used of us as well in the New Testament. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. He's marked you out. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So treasured possession, set with a seal because we're his, we belong to him, we're his treasured possession, that's pretty hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, what's the value in us? Do any of you go through an average week or does this periodically happen where you feel like, you know what, God probably barely puts up with me. I did it again. I screwed up again. How often do you feel like you don't measure up? Like you're failing, like you're a failure. Like you've let God down and disappointed him. Do you ever wonder if maybe he might just change his mind on you? Well, maybe you identify with uh, Francis Chan. I'm going to read from him again. There's nothing worse than insecurity. So many people live in fear because they're uncertain about what comes next and they're standing before God if they even believe in God. On the flip side, there's nothing better than being absolutely sure that the most powerful being in the universe adores you as his own child. This is precisely the confidence the Holy Spirit offers us. Serving God and living faithfully can become a constant guilt trip of trying harder and doing better next time. Maybe you can relate. I've spent much of my Christian life battling insecurity, never quite feeling sure of my salvation, living out of fear and a desperate determination to earn acceptance. I was raised in a home where performance was everything. Unconditional love may have existed, but I never saw it. Failure was met with severe consequences. Dad was my authority. That was all there was to it. I'm not one to blame my lack of faith on circumstances, but our upbringings definitely create challenges for us. Some of you have wounds so deep that you wonder if you'll ever be able to trust Perhaps you've subconsciously taken the failures from sinful human relationships and imposed those shortcomings onto a perfect God. Now uncertainty creeps into even your relationship with God. It is the Holy Spirit who keeps us from this path and gives us confidence so we can enjoy intimacy with our Creator. Though I do not believe God gives us His Spirit solely for our personal benefit, it is undeniable that one of the greatest aspects of being in relationship with the Holy Spirit is the intimacy, security, and encouragement He brings us. It is then we can serve God as a beloved child rather than a stressed-out, guilt-ridden slave. So, if you're a Christian, if you're genuinely in Christ, you are God's treasured possession. And he actually wants you to know that. That's why he sealed you by his spirit. But we struggle to really believe that, don't we? Which is interesting. That's exactly where Paul goes when he prays. Look back at Ephesians 1 where Paul continues there after this one long sentence that Greg read. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith, I don't Cease to give thanks. I'm just praying for you guys all the time. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Second thing, what are the riches of, look at the language, his glorious inheritance. What's God's inheritance? It's his people. You need to know that you're God's treasured possession. (laughs) So Paul's praying because he knows it's hard to believe. He knows it's hard to be secure in the gospel because we keep, you know, spring-loaded. We kind of snap back to trying to earn our standing with God. So you were marked by God. You were identified by the Spirit as God's possession. You are His. It's an ownership. This is a sweet thing. You've been adopted. You are secure. We are safe because we are His. We are protected. So if you knew that, like really knew that, and I mean lived with a real heart-level awareness and sense of the love and the approval and security that's yours by the Spirit in Christ, because of the initiative of the Father, (laughs) do you think it might change how you live day to day? Well, God wants you to know. God wants this for us. And he gave us his spirit, he sealed us with his spirit for just that reason. The spirit is the seal of God on us, and by doing so, God is saying, you're mine. But that's not all. The spirit also is the guarantee. Look at verse 14. So, in Christ, when you heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So God gave us his spirit because he wanted us to know that we're his and that we're secure and protected and kept by him. And the spirit of God is the guarantee of our inheritance. What does that mean? Well, this word guarantee was used in New Testament times in the realm of commercial transactions. Okay, so it can refer to what we would call earnest money. If you've ever bought a house, you know what earnest money is or a down payment on something. Well, what's the point of earnest money? What's the point of a down payment? It's proof and guarantee that the full payment is coming, right? It's evidence that someone is putting their money where their mouth is. Now, in our world, I know, people can back out of real estate deals and lose their earnest money and, you know, but don't import any of that conditionality or uncertainty into this concept here. This is ironclad guarantee right here. This is God saying, Listen, this is God saying to you, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. For the sake of assurance, the future fullness is entered into the present. We get a taste of it now. So the indwelling spirit is the proof that we are heirs with Christ. The inheritance, the full inheritance is coming, but we get a taste of it now. We're sons and daughters now. We've been adopted now. God's our father now. We've been reconciled now. We have peace with God now. And so we will inherit the earth. Everything that's God's will be ours if we're his sons and daughters, right? All things are ours, Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, because we're God's. So the Spirit is the guarantee of what is to come life everlasting, perfect love forever, the riches of God's mercy and grace, full redemption. So do you know that God gave you his spirit as a guarantee of all that? He wants you to know what he's promised to you and know that it's all true and that it's all yours. So that still could be maybe up here in our heads. Okay, how do you experience that, that assurance, that guarantee? The Spirit is the seal, God saying, you're mine. The Spirit is the guarantee, God saying, I want you to know you're mine. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. But there's more. Okay? He doesn't just want us to know in some contractual, merely contractual is wonderful because it's covenantal sense, okay? But merely in a contractual sense, transactional sense, what the spiritual blessings that are ours are. But he wants us to taste those blessings. And so the Spirit isn't just the seal and the guarantee. The Spirit is also the first fruits. Okay? So flip over to Romans chapter 8 so you can see this. Because these things are complementary. These Aspects of the Spirit's work in our lives, Romans eight twenty three. It says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, in the context there, creation all around us is groaning under the curse. It's longing for its renewal because it's under the curse of the fall. And not only creation, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit long for, we groan for, we wait for the fullness of our redemption and adoption. So we've already been adopted, but we don't know the fullness of that yet. We've already been redeemed, but we're not totally free, right? We're still in these broken bodies, and we fight sin, and we... Oftentimes, feel like we're still enslaved to it, but we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Again, what does that mean? Well, this word um, would refer to the first sheaf or the first bit of harvest, like the first bit of um, produce that would come, and it would indicate it was early evidence of the rest of the harvest. Okay, So it's very similar conceptually to the down payment term. So you could say that the guarantee, the down payment term, speaks of profitable, valuable evidence of the full inheritance to come. The first fruits term speaks to the satisfying and sweet, even, can I say it this way, edible evidence of what is ours and what's coming. Okay, So if the Spirit as guarantee is like God saying, you are my heir, all things are yours, I want you to know that it's really yours. Like, if you imagine um, a child that was receiving an inheritance, but he's not 18 yet, and yet he at 16 gets the car. (laughs) It would be real hard evidence that the fullness is coming. Okay, so then if that's the the down payment, the guarantee, then the, the Spirit as first fruits is God saying, Taste this. There's a whole lot more where that came from. So just think about it. God wants you to taste His goodness. He wants you to experience the reliability and the sweetness of His promises. Not just know them in your head. I want you to taste and see. I want you to know that you're mine. I want you to know the blessings of the gospel like you know honey is sweet. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Well, God gave us his spirit because he wanted so badly for us to be able to obey that command. To be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, because I think, I mean, do you struggle with this ever? God's love is often hard to believe. We can often be like those newly adopted orphans who are still hiding food in their high chairs. Think about the image. I've mentioned that one story in the past along these lines. Really adopted, but still acting like they're they're back in the orphanage. We can still operate that way. There's all this worry and fear. Well it's because we need to know, really know, really experience, really taste, really believe. God's perfect love, because perfect love casts out fear. So we already saw why Paul prayed how he prayed in chapter 1. Look at how he prays in chapter 3. Flip to Ephesians three sixteen. He prays that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? You have to experience it. You've got to taste it. It's the only way you really know it like this. And you need the power of the Spirit to do that. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So God doesn't want us merely to know in our heads that we're adopted and that we're his. He wants us to feel it and experience it and taste it so that we're thrilled, so that we're secure. So adoption and redemption are already, but they're not yet, and the already is real, but it's not so visible and tangible. So we need the spirit to make those realities real to us. And hopefully, as he does, it whets our appetite for the fullness, for the full, full fulfillment of those promises. So do you want to know what, <laughs> like, do you want to know like that? Do you want to be assured like that? Do you want to be secure like that? This is the work of the Spirit. This is something to exult and thank you, God, to know his character. That's what he wants. And then to say, Please do it. Praying Ephesians 1, praying Ephesians 3. I need to know this more. Let's flip back to Romans 8 cuz I think this gives an illustration of what this looks like in real time. How we know it and how we need to know it. So, we looked at at this groaning, the first fruits of the spirit in verse 23, but back up a little bit and look at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, sinful deeds, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear because you've been reconciled because of Christ's work on the cross, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. That's a really strong word right there. Cry out. This is not like, oh, hey, Daddy. This is cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him. Okay, so, and suffering is, is quite a bit in this context right here. So just to make this a little bit more practical, because I think sometimes we might wonder if we've ever known that testimony of the Spirit, that assurance from the Spirit. I think this is, is one good example of how this works. So a um, little book called Who on Earth is the Holy Spirit by Tim Chester and Christopher De La Hoyde. He says, as I, Chris, was writing this book, my mother died. She was one of my best friends, and her witness to me through the tough times of her life was one of the key means of grace God used to bring me to faith in Jesus. One of her last text messages to me from Hospital read night-night, my son, brother, and co-heir. It's been a painful time. In the moments of intense sadness and loss, sometimes all I've been able to do is cry out, Father, And yet it's been a huge encouragement to me to know that as I do that, it's not just me striving with my strength to reach out to my heavenly Father. Quite the opposite. As I cry out, Father, it's the Father himself who is reaching out to me through the Spirit, reminding me that in Jesus, I'm his beloved child and drawing me back into his embrace. So where do you go when you suffer? If you cry out, Father, you might not recognize that as the work of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit. It's that spirit of adoption that's within you because you're running to the right place. You're running to your Father. Why would you be doing that? So I don't know if any of you have struggled to know that you're real. Like, am I, am I real? Is my faith real? I have. Maybe you, if you think you were real, you had real faith, you know, you you wouldn't struggle like you do, you'd never suffer or you wouldn't sin so much. No. I think some of the greatest times of confirmation that have come for me and others that I've talked to, it's in the midst of trial and struggle. And when you respond, not perfectly, but you respond in faith and you run to God rather than away from Him. And even in the midst of our stupid sin and unbelief, He comes and rescues us. And we come back. So have you run to God in suffering? If you have the Spirit, you may not understand. You may groan and cry out, not even know how to pray, but you'll cry out to your Father and even the Spirit can pray for us when we don't know how to pray. Let me just give you one other example here of how this works. This is a really powerful thing. So, Russell Moore and his wife adopted some boys from a Russian orphanage, and one of the things that struck him when he went there was how quiet it was, because nobody had attended these children so long that they finally stopped crying. Well, you know how you have to go once, and you have to go through all the hoops, and you know, so they spent time with the boys, and then they had to go back to the United States, and things had to happen, and then they could come back and finally pick up the boys. So Russell Moore describes how he was struck by the terrible, poignant silence of the Russian orphanage, because... This word cry out is really a strong, like, cry out word in verse 15 of Romans 8. Children learn not to cry out when, when no one comes to them, when no one cares for them. For a week, Russell Moore and his wife played with their two future sons. They read to them, sang to them, held them, uh, held them loved them. And each evening they walked out, leaving this eerie silence behind. And then on the last day, the time came for them to go. They had to go back to the United States to complete the legal formalities before the boys could become part of their family. And Russell Moore says he felt compelled to turn back. He went back in and, quoting the words of Jesus, said, We will not leave you as orphans. We will come come for you. And as they walked out down the corridor, they heard one of their sons scream out. The scream of a one-year-old, wordless, angry, desperate, And Russell Moore says it was the most terrible and lovely thing he ever heard. It cut him to the heart, but it was the cry of a son for his father. With that cry of anguish, this orphan had become a son. So just think about how great is the gift of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. He is the seal of ownership and protection. He is the Father saying, You're mine. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the Father saying, I want you to know it's all yours. And He's the first fruits. He's the Father saying, I want you to taste and see the goodness of my glory and my promises. Now, finally, do you see why this big long sentence in Ephesians 1 began with, Blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice the refrain that happens three times in this section, verses 3 to 14, to the praise of his glory, the praise of his glorious grace? So do you see now why the main application of the message is exult in the work of the Holy Spirit? Because if we really grasp what we have, what we've been given, what he loves to do, why God gave him, we're going to say Blessed be God. Oh, he's so good and so great. Way better than a Super Bowl win or a World Series win. So Francis Chan challenges us to do this in in his book, The Book of the Month, and I, I give it to you. Would you be willing to take 30 seconds right now to just dwell on the fact that God is in you? So I think that's good for us now. I think that's good while we are preparing our hearts to participate in the Lord's table in just a minute. Because here's the thing, the fruit of tasting the first fruits is praise and blessing and exaltation. So Hebrews 13, 15, through Christ then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, that know his glory and all he's done for us. Have you ever resonated deeply with Paul, just breaking forth in praise at the end of Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments in his past beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let's just stop and think about who God is, what He's done, and the fact that He's given us His Spirit as the seal and the guarantee and the first fruits. And let's pray that we'll so know this work of the Spirit, tasting the goodness of God by the work of the Spirit, that that taste of the first fruits will just bubble up into praise, and worship. So the song we're going to sing right now is very appropriate because we're going to exult in the work of God. It's called When I Think About the Lord. Okay, So it's a new song, so it might might take a second to get used to it. And it's a little faster, which is sometimes it's harder to get used to, but it's a good song. When I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and turned me around, how he placed my feet on solid gown, it makes me want to shout. Does that ever happen? (laughs) Like, good grief, we ought to be people. Of course, the full range of emotion, the Psalms with, with grief and sorrow and all of that, I'm not playing that down at all. God is so realistic in his word. But man, if we are not a happy people, if we are not rejoicing in the Lord, we are not getting the blessings of the gospel. Down here, and we need the Spirit's work to help us to see and know and taste. And you know what? If you haven't tasted, if you've heard some of this and you thought, you know what? I just don't know if I've ever tasted, you must be born again. And Jesus said that, and that word, even in the word itself, the gospel is the power of God, and the Spirit could take it and raise you to life right now. So let's pray that he would do that. Father, if there are any here that are not alive spiritually, made alive together with Christ, saved by grace, reborn by the Spirit, would you awaken them now? And for those of us that are alive by your grace and your grace alone, I pray that we would think about what you have done and who you have given us to give us your spirit as the seal and guarantee and firstfruits, and I pray that it would make us want to shout. In Jesus' name, amen.